Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant of the door at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest was then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas and then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. At once the rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, loving this church, your church, and the fellowship of Oak Ridge. Help us to, to love like you love. Help us to do what is pleasing to you. Bless the service with your spirit as you already are. Speak to the pastors as they bring your word. Open our ears. Let the Holy Spirit move in a strong way in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The children, I believe, are going to children's church now. Dear Lord, prepare my heart, my mind, 
to deliver the message that you've given me. Lord, I ask that you would prepare the hearts and the ears of the people that are receiving it. God, that it would bring you glory. God, that it would equip us to be able to deal with times of failure in our life. And that it would give us the encouragement to be able to press on. Oh Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So, I like war movies. Pretty much all kind of war movies. I like war movies, like classic war movies, like old World War II movies. I like the new ones that have come out. The one genre of war movie that I don't really care for are, are the ones, like the prison camp movies, where the guys, like Unbroken, I know everybody loves Unbroken. I have not watched it, just because I... I don't like movies about guys who have gotten captured. Um, It's something about me where I don't like to face the grim reality that sometimes um, guys get captured. Um, But but there there is a strength even in, and especially in, people who endure captivity. And as I've grown older and less 18-year-old stupid guy, I've begun to kind of understand and appreciate it. One of the movies that that has come out fairly recently uh, is a movie called Hearts War. I don't know if anybody's seen that movie. It's about a a young um, intelligence officer that gets captured during the Battle of the Bulge. And it's the really the story is about the battle within his own soul. Because one of the first, and this is going to be a spoiler alert, so if you want to watch the movie, like, well, don't turn this off because it's more important. Just realize I'm going to spoil it for you. One of the first things that happens in the story is the guy gets captured and he gets interrogated. And he completely breaks and just shares everything. And he's humiliated. And, and, and that's the grim reality for most of us for capture. See, we all think of ourselves as the strong, um, courageous one who would just like spit in the interrogator's eye and be like, you do whatever you want to me, right? But most of us, statistically, are going to break under persecution and when we face challenges. And so... Uh, After World War II uh, and after the Korean War, the U.S. military found that there was a lot of their guys that were were becoming um, really despondent in captivity, weren't dealing with POW captivity well. This became especially the case after the Korean War, where they had 193 American servicemen that chose to stay in North Korea, like in North Korea. They stayed there. They got brainwashed. And so they began to ask themselves, why is this? What's going on? What is this about? What is it about the POW experience that's leading to this? And what they found is that when you have a hard expectation that no one will break, when they do break, they fall apart. They are hard, but the, the kind of the flip side of hardness is being brittle. 
And so what they tried to do over the next 30, 40 years is to make servicemen resilient, to, to help them to understand that in, in, a, in a POW situation, it's, it's about endurance over time and giving away as little as possible for as long as possible until the information that you have is no longer useful. Because you see, when we come face to face with our own failure, that's really when we begin to learn who we are as people. Our, our story this morning is very much about a man's failure. Uh, as we've been going through, we, last week we began our series on the passion of Christ. And, and one of the things that I've noticed as I've gone through and studied the passion of Christ is the story is, om, is, is, is focused to a really weird degree on Peter, right? It's Christ's passion, but most of it, if not half of the story of the passion, is dedicated to Peter messing it up. Uh, almost as if there, there's this, uh, this interweaving of these two stories. It's the story of Christ's trial and really Peter's trial. Jesus is on trial before Annas and Caiaphas, and at the same time, Peter is on trial in the courtyard. Well, we know how Jesus does. He, he goes through his trial, goes to the cross, does not deny the faith, and is glorified. Peter, on the other hand, fails completely. But it's in his failure that we can begin to see elements of his character come out. And so I want to expend today's message tracing out Peter's passion. His passion really begins several chapters before, back in chapter 13. We, we kind of talked about it, and I didn't really explain it that much at the time, but I want to go into it. Back in John 13, verse 37, we read, uh, as Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he's telling his disciples that he's going to go away and then come back, and that where he goes, they can't follow him, and they're all super confused. He tells them that, that uh, they're going to be betrayed, and that Judas is going gonna, is gonna to turn on them, and, and everybody's really confused. And Peter who is a hothead, Peter, who, who always says what's in his heart, begins to tell Jesus about how he's going to be during this ordeal. And Peter, we, we read, Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And, and I, I want to I pause for a second here. We pastors have a tendency to use Peter as a whipping boy. And, and I do it. It's really easy in the book of John because Peter looks like, like just this goober who just, you know, says dumb things and gets yelled at by Jesus and he never gets it right. But, but I, I want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here. Peter really meant what he said. Peter loved Jesus with every fiber of his being. But, but he can't escape who he is. When Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus, 
we, we got to believe that what he says is true. And, and the reason I say that is because a few hours later, like we talked about last week, Peter is going to pull out a rusty sword and attack a squad of trained Roman killers with it. And there's nothing else in that other than Peter wanting to die well. The way, the, the way that the world kind of defines dying well. I mean, if, if he knew what Valhalla was or he watched like any of the Thor movies, he'd be like, yes, I'm going to go with a sword in my hand. Like Peter really believes this. Peter really believes that he will die with Christ. But there's this kind of interesting thing that happens in this conversation. We see some other things come in in some of the other Gospels. And so I'm going to kind of interweave some of the other things that we have uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with this because it rounds out the story. In, in verse 22, uh, I'm, chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus kind of prefaces this conversation this way. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, that's a really uncomfortable thing for Jesus to tell you. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, right off the bat, as we look at this, there's somebody that comes to our mind when we read this, and it's Job, right? We have this image of of Satan before the altar of God in Job, and, and, and God is saying, Behold, have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. And, and then Satan's like, Well, yeah, of course, if you have everything, you can be a good servant. Let me take it all away and then see how he is. And God's like, Okay, just don't kill him. That's always made me really uncomfortable. <laughs> Not because I don't think there is any servant like me in all the earth. But it just makes me uncomfortable to think that God would turn me over to Satan to prove a point. And yet, that is the point of the book of Job. That Job's suffering, while beyond his own comprehension, exists for the glory of God. And so we come back to, to Peter being told this by Jesus, Jesus is telling him, hey, guess what? Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I, I, want you to, I want you to hear what he says next. He doesn't say, but Peter, I told him no. He, he doesn't say, don't worry about it, Peter. It's all going to be okay. This is what he says. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's saying, you're going to be handed over to Satan to be sifted. Satan asked for you and God's going to give him to you. It's in response to that that Peter begins with his bravado to say that he will die before he abandons Jesus. See, Peter is a big, strong man, and he's come to love and esteem Jesus, and he can't stand the idea that there are things outside of his control or loved ones that he cannot protect. Gentlemen, there's many of you guys in here that are like that. There's many of you in here that would die before you let somebody hurt your family. 
That's what motivates Peter's heart. This is what motivates Peter when, when, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, and Peter's like, no, you're not. Absolutely not. Under no circumstances are you going to go to the cross. And what, what does Jesus say? Get, the, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus has some hard words for Peter a lot. Peter says foolish, insulting things, and he always comes back to regret him later. Like, Peter can't get his foot out of his own mouth most of the time. Uh, G- Jesus says, well, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. And Peter's like, nope, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. Not mine. Jesus goes up on the mountaintop with Peter and John, and, and Peter sta- or Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah in, in this transfigured glory, and, and Peter's just like, I don't know, i got to say something. Let me build you a house up here, Jesus. That's Peter. And now as Jesus is close to death, Peter looks into his eyes and tells him that he will be with him come hell or high water. And Christ's response is nothing short of crushing for Peter. He looks Peter in the eyes and he says, Before the rooster crows three times, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And that shuts Peter up. See, Satan is asked to sift Peter like wheat, but Jesus has promised his eventual restoration. This is what's important for us to remember. It's not that Peter's not going to be tested, and it's not that Peter's not going to fail. The promise that Jesus makes to Peter is that when it's all done, he will restore Peter. See, Jesus doesn't promise to prevent Peter's failure. He prays for Peter's restoration. And this is important for us, guys, because we're not going to win all the time. Guys, we're not even going to win most of the time. My mom had this really cool uh, cartoon on her. It was like one of those cartoons that you cut out. It was the far side. You guys, a lot of you guys remember the far side. If you're young, you probably don't. It's amazing. She had this little poster uh, that she would put up on her. It was on her door, I remember. And it said, Sometime, I said no ma- sometimes, no matter how hard you fight, no matter how right you are, the dragon wins. And it's this picture of this like knight, he's all black and he's got a bent sword and a shivered shield and he's just kind of walking away. And, and that's something for us to remember, like, guys, there's going to be times where we leave it all out there on the fail and we still lose. And, and it's at moments like that that we really understand who we are, right? Because we learn way more through our failures than we do through our victories, Right? Our victories, we can ascribe to a thousand different things. We can be like, oh, well, you know, it's because I'm wise or because I'm clever or because, when often it's just circumstances, but our failures show us who we are. And so we're going to watch as Peter fails. See, all of this happened hours before in the evening, and so we kind of catch up to where we are in the story now. Jesus has been arrested. He has been taken into the, the, uh, the house of the high priest. He, he, we, we remember from last week that he went into Annas' office. 
Uh, Annas was the, was the, uh, the, the father-in-law of the high priest. He was kind of like the godfather of Jerusalem. He controls everything. He's got his hands in all the pots. He's stirring all the things, and he wants to see Jesus first and find out who this guy is. And so as Jesus has been taken into the, into the house of the high priest, Peter and John, and, and we don't know that it was John, but we think it was John, uh, one of the other disciples slip into the courtyard. Now, I want to take a minute here because it's a little bit weird that, that Peter and John are able to slip into the courtyard. We're told in the scripture, um, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, when John writes his gospel and he doesn't name somebody, it's generally him because he mentions everybody else. Okay, if it was like Nathaniel or Nicodemus or any of these other guys, he would say Nathaniel or Nicodemus. But a lot of times he'll be like, and there was another guy there. He never actually mentions his own name. And so we think there's a pretty good chance that this is John. But, but here's the interesting thing. And so did another disciple since that disciple was known to the high priest. So somehow John had gotten to know the high priest. We don't know how, we don't know why, we can make all kind of speculation, but whatever way, John has an in, and so he gets Peter into the courtyard. And so I want you to imagine this. It's been a long night already. Last night, Shannon and I had, uh, we had um, an Arabic pastor over to our house. We had dinner. We talked all night. It was like 10 o'clock at night. We looked at him like, oh no. And we had to start cleaning up at 10 o'clock at night, right? It, having community can be a long drawn out experience. We were just exhausted afterwards. But now they've already had their community meal. They've had their time in the desert. They've had this emotionally gut-wrenching time. And now it's closing in towards midnight. And Peter and John are in the courtyard as they question Jesus. And as they kind of stand around this fire, one of the ladies, one of the, one of the servants comes up to Peter, right? And she heard his voice, right? And they talked differently. They, they spoke differently in Galilee than they did in Jerusalem. So she's like, you guys don't belong here. You have kind of a different sounding voice. Are, are you connected with this? Like, are you one of his disciples? Surely you're not one of his disciples, you also are not one of these men's disciples, are you? And it's at that moment that Peter's put on the spot. And he's, he's got to look around at the guards that are there. I mean, he's already attacked somebody with a sword. His boss is in trial right now. There's soldiers all around. There's servants all around. He's in the courtyard of the high priest and he's just kind of, uh, and, and, and he does what he said he wasn't going to do. Now is his opportunity to stand up and say, I am also one of his disciples. Take me in there with him. I will die with my master. That'd be the cool thing. Like if Arnold Schwarzenegger was playing Peter, that's what he would do. Or Jean-Claude Van Damme. Did I just date myself? Yeah, I did. I super did, didn't I? I don't know who's cool now. That guy, the bald head guy, that, I don't know, whatever. If I was cool, I'd know somebody from, the, from contemporary culture that it would be. But that's not what Peter does, does he? He says, uh, I'm not. Nope, not me. Got the wrong guy. Now, at this point, 
Peter can probably play it off in his own mind. He can be like, well, you know, after all this happened, I really don't deserve to be called a disciple. So technically, I'm not lying. But he has begun the process of denying Christ. See, Peter is an emotional wreck. And he denies Jesus first during Christ's meeting with Annas, the high priest. But it's not the last time he's going to deny him. As the evening wears on, right, we pass midnight. Uh, we, lo- we learned about this last week. Annas is really kind of playing. Uh, he's, 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 uh, he's jumping through the loopholes trying to, to make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed so they can kill Jesus. And so he has an initial hearing kind of in the hours before midnight, right, because you can't, you can't convict a person on the same day that you accuse him, right? So he's like, oh, well, we convicted you on, uh, uh, we accused you on this day, and then now it's an hour later, so now we can, now we can convict you, right? So they, they kind of wrap up Jesus, they, and they bring him over to the next room, and, it, and it's, again, we have kind of this interesting imagery here. We know that Jesus is being tried in a place where Peter can actually see him, Okay, so this isn't like, sometimes when we think about this, we think of like a a huge manor house or something where there's like these, well, he's like inside a a courtroom, but it's not probably. It's probably a a large uh, bottom floor room that kind of opens onto the courtyard with Peter. So Peter is there watching as they're accusing Jesus of all this stuff, as they're spitting on him and hitting him and asking these questions and bringing out false witnesses against him. And he's watching this happen as he and, and and John kind of warmed themselves around this trash can fire. I don't know if it's a trash can fire, but in my mind it's a trash can fire. They're warming themselves kind of in the courtyard, watching as Jesus is being harassed and shook down. And again, another servant comes up to him. And this time it's a little bit more insistent. She looks at him and says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And she's like listening to the things that Jesus is saying as they're accusing him of of being the Messiah or claiming to be the king of Israel or claiming to tear the temple down. And and the servants are kind of standing there and looking at him like, what is this guy saying? What is happening? And so she looks at him and he's like, are you one of this guy's disciples? Maybe can you explain this to me, what he's saying? Like, what is going on in there? And at this point, Peter stands up and says, yes, I am. I am Spartacus. Except he doesn't. This time, he's he's under pressure, right? So what does he do? We read, um, he denied it and said, I am not. But that's not what it says in, in Matthew. In Matthew, it says, he denied it and he starts cussing out the woman who asked him. That goes under, methinks the gentleman doth protest too much. He starts, I'm not that blankety-blank guy that you think I blankety-blank am. It's like, why are you so, like, angry about this, Peter? Like, just say no. But he's becoming unhinged. He's becoming violent, much more violent. Well, finally, the final denial happens just as the sun is coming up. We read one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So now Peter's kind of like a caged animal. He's kind of like back in the corner, right? And people keep asking him, and they're whispering, and one of the guys who was actually in the garden, 
watching as Peter takes a sword and hits this other dude in the head. He's like, nah, man, I saw you there. What does Peter do? Well, again, we get a really good indication from the Gospel of Luke. It says that Peter denies it, cusses at the guy speaking to him, and then calls a curse down on himself. This would have been something like, may the Lord do thus and so to me if I am one of this man's followers. He denies that he is one of this man's, that he even knows, I don't even know who that guy is. Stop asking me. In the most violent and vociferous terms, I don't even know this man, get out of my face. And we read in the Gospel of Luke, at that moment, Jesus looks up right into Jesus' eyes, and the cock crows. And then it all comes home. Peter, the man who, more than any of the other disciples, has declared who Jesus is, has just denied him. Think about it. Back in chapter 6, Peter is the one, when, when all of the other disciples leave him, Jesus says, well, well are you guys going to leave too? And, and what does Peter says? He says, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Later on, Jesus will say, well, well who do men say that I am? And they'll say, well, some say you're Elijah and some say you're a prophet. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all that's got to go through his mind as he says, no, I don't know him. This man who has declared who Jesus is over and over and over again, when it actually counts, he denied him. And there's got to be another verse that comes into his mind, right? Even as these memories flood into his mind, he's, as he cries out that he doesn't know who Jesus is, and that he's got to remember Jesus when he said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And with that thought ringing around in his head, he cries out, and weeps bitterly. And I just want to take a moment, guys, and, and, and say, I, I don't know about you, but I've been there. There are moments in my life where, where I have kind of come to myself and seen who I am and realized I have utterly, through my actions or my words, denied who Christ is. Like, like that moment where you kind of see yourself and you're like, this is not who I want to be. So somehow, I have become this person that I never wanted to be. How did, how did I get here? That, that can undo you. It, it can break you. It can be incredibly sobering. See, it, it is the realization that you have been tested and you have failed. Peter has been tested. He has been weighed and measured and he has been found wanting he was sifted like wheat and he blew away like the chaff 
And yet, the glorious truth is, in the kingdom of God, even our failures are used by God for his glory. See, nothing is outside of God's plan or his sovereign will. Jesus didn't warn Peter about the coming trial because he wanted Peter to pass the test. He told him so that Peter would not become despondent after he had failed the test. Peter failed, but his failure would be used by God to make him stronger. I want you to think about this, right? This same sorry man who has just denied Christ in his presence as Christ is being beaten and spit on, and he's just like, oh, I don't know who this guy is. After he not hours before said, I'll die with you, Jesus. This clown, right? This this guy who is just, the, the, like, it's like the guy who like puffs his chest out, like, you want to fight, you want to fight. And then he's like, oh, my, my bad, I'm just going to walk over here. Who's proven himself to be a coward. This guy will be in this same place. Not two months later. And, he, and he's not going to be asked simple questions by some servants. He's going to be in the room where Jesus is, being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And he's going to have the guts to look at them and say, you do whatever you want to me. But I'm not going to stop professing Christ. This same guy will be in this same courtyard and he's going to take a beating for the name of Christ and walk out into the street celebrating the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is made of. It's made of our failures that have been redeemed through the sovereign grace of God. He failed so that he would learn that his will and his power are not the driving factor in the advance of God's kingdom. How would this story have gone if Peter had been the awesome guy that stands with Jesus? It would have been a totally different story. It would have been all about how Peter was an awesome guy and how we should emulate Peter. But that's not what this is. This is about God using a broken tool in an amazing way. He sinned, but his sin would be redeemed and his life would be consecrated. He repented. And his repentance would change the way that he ministered. See, he failed. But his failure... His failure wasn't final. Later on, he is going to testify before kings and princes... He's going to testify before the emperor of Rome himself and he will with his last breath from the cross that they crucified him on testify to the nature of Christ. He failed, but his failure was used by God to make him strong. He went through the fire, but the fire didn't consume him like a crucible that purified him. It refined him and transformed him into something greater Someone stronger. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this because every one of us faces failure. But it is our failures and God's redemption, not our successes, that form the foundation of our life in God. 
We don't stand in our faith and look back on our success and be able to look how great I am. I'm awesome. Look at all these cool things that I did. No. Everything in our life that matters is something that we gooned up that God has repaired. Something that he has restored. Because it's not about us. Right? It's about his glory. It's not that we can point back to and say, oh, look what an awesome guy I am and how, how cool I am and how I, I chose him and, and how I, I earned my salvation. That's none of that. This is about I have messed up everything that I could possibly mess up and yet God has come down in the pit where I was and dragged me up by my hair and saved me against all nature. It's about the reckless love of God that comes and saves me when I'm his enemy. That's what this story is about. That's what our stories are about. Now, now listen to me. I'm not saying that our actions don't matter. I'm not saying that we can just go and do whatever we want to and, and I'm just going to sin a lot so that God can be glorified in my sin. That's not what I'm saying. Like our actions do matter. He wants us to, to do the right thing. He wants us to avoid sin. But guys, all too often we can perceive we can perceive that success is a sign of faithfulness. Right? That blessing, big churches, flashy ministries, that all of these things are signs that somebody has been faithful. After all, God is obviously best, blessed people that have a lot with a lot. But we've got to see the people who struggle have a place in the kingdom of God. Guys, when we don't make room for failure, when we judge other sins, when we view some as unredeemable or beyond God's grace... We don't allow room for the redemption. And we elevate human success above God's provision. We, we need to understand, guys, that, that there, there was a great man, Winston Churchill said this, he said, success is not final, and failure is not fatal. It is the courage to go on that counts. And that's true about the Christian life. You may be doing really good right now, you made all the right choices. You've done all the right stuff. Beautiful family. Good education. Great job. Lots of money in the bank. Good. That's a good thing. But you need to understand that your success isn't final. You, you haven't arrived. You are constantly at risk of falling, of making a mistake, even if not your own pride coming in and tearing you down. Right? Don't, don't become complacent in your walk with God because you feel like everything's going right. Because it's when everything is going right, that's when the devil comes up and really sticks you. That's when you fail. But, but guys, more importantly, we need to understand that failure is not fatal. This is because our failures serve as the catalyst for our salvation and the fire that burns away our pride. Our weakness 
perfects God's strength. And our sin is the canvas of God's redemption. So as we prepare to leave this place this morning, I want to just encourage you to look at your failures. Look at the things that you have gooned up in your life, the places that you have messed up. And I want you to see them as opportunities that God has given you to glorify him. Guys, I have made tons of mistakes in my life. And I have done tons of things that I am not proud of. And I'm given the choice every day to allow these things to haunt me and determine who I am or to allow God to use them for his glory. And it can be all kinds of different things, right? I mean, I've told many of you guys my experiences when I was in the military and when I was in the Marine Corps, things that I did that I'm not proud of, things that I did that haunt me, and yet those things are used by God to allow me to reach other people. It's one of the reasons I tell boring war stories all the time. It's the way that I cope. But but I am not the only person. I don't have a lock on this. Everybody here has failed at something. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe you've been married a couple of times. That does not invalidate your service in the kingdom of God. It doesn't make you unusable in the kingdom. It means that God has redeemed these bad choices and sinful decisions that you've made and used them to minister to the people around you. Maybe you... you partied super hard when you were young. There's some of you out there, man. Y'all, y'all earned your testimony the hard way. Okay? I'm not going to look at y'all, okay? I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to look up here. You know who you are. Listen, you can look at those things shamefully. You can lie about them or hide them, or, or you can use them to paint a picture of what God's grace and redemption looks like. God uses broken tools. He uses flawed people in amazing ways. Because I'm going to tell you, there is a testimony in a broken marriage that's fixed. There is a testimony in a partier who finds their joy in Christ. There is a testimony in a parent whose children have wandered from the faith and then come back. These are the pictures and the stories that matter in our lives. Not the person who pretends like they've never had anything bad ever happen to them. So guys, I want to encourage you to take a moment to think about those things that you feel are your biggest shame and to pray to God to release them to him, that he would use them for his glory and restore them in his sovereign way. But I want to give you one warning. This redemption and this recreation only occurs for those who are in Christ. I am not preaching a message of self-actualization where you can, through your own effort, be the best you that you can be. This is about how Christ transforms our failures. And if you do not have Christ in your life, your failures will not be transformed. So above all and before all, before any of these things happen, we have to give our poor choices 
and our shattered lives to Christ. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never given your life to Christ, if, there, if you have never dedicated yourself to him or accepted him as the Lord of your life, I would encourage you, use this as a time to come forward so that we can pray with you and show you how to do this. Maybe you've accepted Christ, but you've never walked with him actively, and you don't even know how to. Well, guys, we call that discipleship. And if you're looking for a place where you can be discipled, you're here. I'd encourage you to come forward and join us and join one of our discipleship groups and learn how to live. Maybe you're just broken right now. Come forward and we'll pray with you. We'll pray for you that God will restore whatever is broken and bring it to light. I don't know where you are this morning, guys. But I do know that we serve a God who takes broken things and uses them for his glory. You are broken, but he can use you. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.